good morning, church. You may be seated. As you take your seats, I'd like to direct you to the lyrics of the psalm that we sang this morning, Psalm 2. We've been discussing the ins and outs of government and how the Christian should respond to government. One encouraging note I always take when I hear Psalm 2 read or as we've sung it, in the second stanza, the last line says, you will receive the world, speaking of Jesus, Jesus, you will receive the world, just ask of me, the Father. I heard one teacher say one time, do you think that Jesus forgot to ask? With all of the turmoil and the wildness that we see happening in the world around us, do you think that Jesus forgot to ask for the nations? He did not. He asked of the nations, and God has and is giving them to him. Well, if you're a visitor with us, we are in the middle of a study of 1 Peter. And if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll find ourselves again this morning in verse 13, and we'll continue to verse 14 this morning. I'll read those verses for us this morning. The word of the Lord says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, this morning, we need to hear from you. We live in the midst of a time of great turmoil as Christians throughout every generation have lived. And we need to know how we are to act and respond in this world, in this nation, in America, with the kind of government that we have and the behavior that often characterizes it. And we know that your word will not lead us astray, will lead us on the right path. But apart from a work of your spirit, this word is impossible for us to understand. It is impossible for me to preach, and it is impossible for your people to receive. So please, do a work among us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask this. And amen. Well, for those of you who were with us last week, we focused just the be- on just the beginning of verse 13. Be subject. Peter's concern for us in this second half of his letter is our Christian conduct. Is our Christian conduct. He is concerned for how we behave towards the outside world. And he begins by speaking to us about various kinds of human institutions, about various human authorities. He begins in 13 and 14 with the government. And last week, I spoke strictly about our responsibility, and that is to be in submission. Submission, I defined last week, if you were not with us, is our accepting and taking of our God-commanded place in the world done voluntarily and with joy. Let me say that again. Submission, or being subject for the Lord's sake, 
is our accepting and taking of our God-commanded place in the world done voluntarily and with joy. Now, we took just last week to examine that phrase, and I asked you to examine yourself over the last week and consider your own behavior and your submission to those authorities in your life. I'd like to know, church, how were your meditations on that this week? I personally was convicted about the way that I speak about the government in conversations with my brothers that I'm close to. The state's authority can be verbally challenged, but we as Christians ought do it with respect and according to the word of God. Paul told Timothy in his second letter, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He must be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil. Well, we're going to turn from our responsibility to whom our responsibility is directed. This week, we are going to look at the question that Peter deals with, continuing in verse 13 and 14, submit to whom? We are to be in submission, but we are to submit to whom? Now, I'd like to say a few brief words before I start with this morning's message. I want to encourage you towards a kind of hermeneutic this morning. As you listen to the Word of God, as you are a hearer of God's Word, how do you understand the Word of God? How do you receive the Word of God and understand it? That's essentially what hermeneutics means. It is our method of interpretation. Hermeneutics is how we understand something, the method that we use to understand what we read or what we hear. Dr. Glenn Sunshine of the Theology Podcast, one of these uh, Christian thinkers that I love listening to every week, um, warns against a hermeneutic of suspicion. A hermeneutic of suspicion. The hermeneutic of suspicion is one that, and on hearing or reading a text, um, approaches it, and the method of interpretation is to start out with suspicion to be suspicious of what's being said. I'm not sure where we're going to go today when we talk about the government. So I'm going to come at this with a critical spirit. I'm going to be guarded at the outset and, and have a mind that wants to pick this apart. Now, you know, beloved, that we are to be good Bereans when we understand and hear the word of God, whether we read it or receive it in the preaching hour. But I would encourage you to be cautious of a hermeneutic of suspicion. Dr. Sunshine recommends instead a hermeneutic of charity, a hermeneutic of charity, a hermeneutic of love, a hermeneutic that is willing to compare truth with truth to make sure that we're hearing what is right, but also a hermeneutic that's willing to receive the truth and not be critical of what's said. I say this because this morning we're going to discuss a range of views of how Christians have understood the government and how they understood or understand um, submission to the government. I'm not going to define exactly what a different group believes, but just categories of people and how they typically understand the word. I just want to give some general understandings. And so don't think that I'm here to create certain buckets and you have to fall into one of these buckets. I want to give some uh, just a range of views, and you'll have an understanding of where people might lean when they think about how to be submissive to the government. Lastly, I want to say that I was helped this week in my study by a book that we received at the conference. Those of you who uh, went to the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference, um, we were given a copy of this book by Dr. Philip Kaiser. It's called The Divine Right 
of Resistance, Biblical Options for Opposing Tyranny. Um, This book was helpful in my studies this week. No, Dr. Kaiser did not write this sermon this morning, so no sermon gate needed it, Christ the King. Um, But he he gave a, a range of views of how Christians have understood the government, and it was helpful for my own understanding. And particularly when we talk about a hermeneutic of charity, being charitable of other people and their views. That's the main reason I want to talk about the way that Christians view their interactions with the government is so we can understand that people have different consciences. When they read the word of God, their conscience can be bound to what their understanding is and that we need to be charitable towards them if they have a difference of opinion, even if their opinion might be uh, slightly misled. Dr. Kaiser opens his book with these words. He says, church shutdowns, Christians forbidden to meet, Christian businesses forced to close, weapons outlawed, sidewalk preaching banned, accusations of thought crimes. These are today's dystopian headlines. And are they a sign that the end is near? Actually, that list is not from today's headlines. It's from the first century A.D., And this was Jesus' own political landscape. Beloved, there is nothing new under the sun. We are experiencing, in our context and in our time, many of the same things the Lord Jesus and his followers experienced in their day. And so that's why we want to look closely at Peter's words about the Christian's call to submit to the government. What is my responsibility? And does Peter give us any indication of to whom we're to submit, and their responsibility to us. Well, as you see in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What authority are we commanded to submit to? The ESV translates the Greek word katesis, human institutions. You might have a different translation um, than that, depending, but most translations are somewhere in that neighborhood, human institution. The Greek word katesis actually means creature or created thing. Now, it might sound strange for Peter to say something along the lines of, be subject for the Lord's sake to every creature or every created thing. Okay, so context is key. Whether it be to, he continues on, the emperor as supreme, or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So he gives us some categories. Here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he gives us some categories. He talks about the emperor. He talks about the governor. So what are those authorities that we are to submit to? They are human creations, divinely appointed by God to help govern a society. In Peter's context, there was an emperor. There were governors as sent by the emperor, and they had certain tasks to fulfill. There are these authority structures that are set up in the world God allows and commands Christians to be submissive to. That should seem plain from the text. Romans 13, another similar passage, speaking to the Christian about our responsibilities towards the government, uses the term authority. Exousia is the Greek word. That word literally means powers over you, over powers. Um, Powers that have authority over us. So, beloved, the scripture says plainly that God sets up all of these authorities, these offices of government, and that we should be submissive to them. 
Now, a question might arise. Is this authority the person who holds the office or is it the office itself? Now, human beings, we've got a reason. We've got to say, now, I, I can't really divorce the two. I, I can't separate a man from his office. But the man apart from his office has no authority. I talked to my children last night as we were discussing this in family worship. And I said, what is daddy to you if I'm not your daddy? And they said, well, you're just, you're Chris. You'd be Chris Jones. Do I have a right then to tell you to do this or that? No, if you're not my daddy, you don't. Right, but because God has divinely appointed me as their father, and he's given us the office of father as the head of the home, then I have certain responsibilities towards my children. Will uh, Templeton and I were talking this week in the office down on Cherry Street about authorities and authority structures, and he and I were discussing uh, the presidency of the United States. If uh, Joe Biden, the current president of the United States, were to come into the office and begin to talk to us, we would owe him our honor and respect. Why? Not because he's Joe Biden, but because he is the president of the United States. Now, I know this is a little slow to start out, but I want to make sure that as we proceed, we're all on the same page together. A lot of this is going to be very familiar territory for us as we discuss God-ordained authorities. Because we need to make sure our bearings are set, we have our definitions in place, because when we get to the Word of God, it's going to make some very strong statements about the Christian's responsibility towards the state and then it's going to make some other statements that might seem like it contradicts that. Have you ever wondered how God can command what seems like absolute obedience to a state as he seems to do here in 1 Peter and also in Romans 13 and then allow for righteous men and women throughout the biblical narratives to disobey the state and still be called righteous? Yet the word of God presents truths to us in this way. We know as Christians that the Bible is internally consistent. Our God is not the God of contradiction. He does not say one thing and then with the other hand allow another and wink at it and it's no big deal. Our submission to the state must be real submission because God commands it. And yet at the same time, we also can have behavior that is consistent with the behavior of the saints of old that we see throughout the Old and New Testaments and how they respond to the state, and we too can still be called righteous along with them. These truths must go together without breaking the consistency of Scripture. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not bring it to pass? So, the reformers have given us our standard and our tool when we come to the scriptures. We bring a heart of charity in how we receive the word and understand it, but we also compare scripture with scripture. The reformation was ushered in through this methodology. Scripture interprets scripture. And typically, the understandable passages help us see the more difficult passages to understand. So what we're going to attempt to do this morning is resolve what could seem like a conflict between exceptionless commands given to us by Paul and Peter, 
and narratives that seem full of exceptions. So I want to give you three views on government this morning. Three views on how Christians have seen the state and how we should submit or interact with it. I'm going to give you these three views. This will be a short outline uh, for this morning. Number one, the absolutist view. The absolutist view of government. Number two, the general truth view of government. And number three, the regulative principle view of government. So first, looking at the absolutist view. This is the obey without exceptions view of government. The government is to be obeyed as an absolute authority from God. Now, your immediate response might be, where did you get that idea? Where, would, where does that come from? How, how would any Christian reading the whole counsel of God believe that? Well, in these passages that are instructive for us as Christians, both Paul and Peter don't give us any exceptions. They leave out exceptions in these instruction passages. Peter here says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Goes on to tell us what kinds of institutions there were in that day, and then doesn't give us any exceptions. Paul does the same thing in Romans 13. He says, let every person, every person, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's Romans 13, 1 from the ESV. Listen to how the NIV phrases this. For there are no, excuse me, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That doesn't leave a lot of room for wiggling around. It doesn't leave a lot of room for exceptions. We want to know what the exceptions are, but in the teaching passages, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, also in Titus uh, chapter 3, there are no exceptions given. This is in part how Henry VIII substantiated his divine right of kings view of government. He claimed that as the authority that God had put over his people, he had the divine right to decree law and no one could challenge him. Since he was God's appointed authority, his word was law. This is the rex is lex view of government. That's Latin for the king is the law. The king is the law. To disobey an authority would be to disobey God. Verse 2 of Romans 13, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, beloved, when you come into contact with somebody who might lean this direction, who wants to give the government a lot of room, because they don't see exceptions here in these command passages, and they want to make sure that they're being obedient to God. Remember first, before you jump to judgments, that they are endeavoring to read the word of God and honor their Lord. We need to remember that. We need to have charity as we sense people who have these consciences that are bound to these passages. They want to protect their conscience. 
Romans 13, verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, the wrath of God upon the wrongdoer, but also for the sake of conscience. So this view takes very seriously the wording of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. That's a, that's a positive thing. It takes seriously the word of God. Now, as I mentioned before, though, Scripture has to interpret Scripture. Scripture is internally consistent. It has to maintain consistency through Genesis, from Genesis through to the end of Revelation. And so this view does encounter some problems. There are exceptions throughout the course of the Bible. Jesus, for example, our Lord, God himself on earth, disobeyed the high priest when he stood before him. The high priest was answering asking questions of Jesus, and Jesus did not obey. Now, the response might be given, well, he had to because he was being obedient to the prophecy of he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he answered not a word. Now, I can understand that, right? But God would appoint authority where he says, you must always obey, and yet Jesus disobeys. There seems to be an inconsistency. He would not respond to Pilate when asked direct questions in Matthew 27. He commanded his disciples to carry weapons with them into the Garden of Gethsemane, which, by the way, it was illegal for them to carry those weapons. Roman law forbade them from carrying swords. That was from Luke chapter 22. The apostles refused to obey the authorities and continued to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 5 because they said that they should obey God rather than men. This view, the absolute authority view, has some difficulty here because we seem to see two different things being said in the scriptures. I must obey God rather than men, but God commands me to be subject for his own sake to these governing authorities. Now, you might respond to me by saying um, those passages that you quoted are the narrative passages. They describe, but they don't necessarily instruct And I would say that's true, they are narrative passages, but all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is useful that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And John says it even more strongly in 1 John chapter 2, whoever claims to abide in Christ must live the way he did. We must live just like our Lord and Savior. And I think, church, one of the difficulties is we've forgotten how to read story. We have forgotten as Christians how to read story. Doug Wilson said this, I think, in a very helpful way. Christians don't understand stories. We treat the Bible like it is a repository of doctrine. We shake the doctrines out, and then we throw the story away like it was a carton that the doctrine came in. But the story is not the carton. The story contains truth for instruction of the Christian life. The absolutist view, though coming from a good heart, would appear to be inconsistent with the whole counsel of God. Yet be charitable to those who lean this way, church. Secondly, the general truth view. These are the People who say, we always obey the government, but there are some exceptions. We always obey the government, but there are some exceptions. Yes, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 do command us to obey the government at all times unless, and here's the principle, 
unless the government commands what God forbids or it forbids what God commands. I'll give you a few examples from the book of Daniel. Daniel, in chapter 1, and his friends um, were commanded to eat the food of the king. However, they did not eat the food of the king because God had commanded them not to eat unclean things. And the foods of the king included categories of things that Jews could not eat. And so they did not obey the king because he was commanding what God forbids. Number two, in chapter three, Daniel's three friends would not worship the golden statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because they would have broken a command that God forbids. You shall worship no one but the Lord your God. Him alone shall you serve. In chapter six, Daniel refused to stop praying to his God and pray only to the king. That is the government forbidding what God commands. We are commanded to pray at all times, to seek our Lord in prayer. And Daniel refused to stop praying to his God, a command of God that the state was forbidding. So this seems very simple. These, in Daniel, these examples, these men were commanded by the state and yet they found grounds for disobedience along these two lines. Unless the state commands what God forbids, and forbids what God commands. Now, I think the positives of this view is the general truth view, first of all, points us to the fact that there is a higher authority. Every authority has to be subject to a higher authority. Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes. And of course, the absolute authority is God. Also, the rule that we just read, commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, is a generally helpful rule. Some things to consider of the general truth view, though. Being general has a downside. Being general can have a downside. Um, One of my favorite sports announcers all through my childhood uh, was John Madden. He he has a knack for oversimplifying the game of football. Um, When they were in the middle of uh, NFL games, and and he was one of the announcers, um, he would say, very witty statements, um, such as, you can't win a game if you don't score any points. You can't win a game if you don't score any points. Um, he'd say, in this next play, the defense is going to be looking for either a run or a pass. Yes, that's true. They generally do. He'd say, now there's a guy who can throw the ball to another guy and have him catch it sometimes. Usually... The team who turns the ball over less will hold on to the ball more. Very true. Okay, those are all absolutely true statements about the game of football. It is a bit of an oversimplification of the game of football. Be cautious of a view that gives you this one idea that simplifies things, that is true, that makes it easy to understand when there could be more nuance. Does the word of God lack details on what the state's job is. What is the job of the state? Does the government have a right to tell me when to worship, how to worship, whom to worship? No, we all agree. In spiritual matters, God is our highest authority. But what about when it comes to our families? What about when it comes to our personal health? What about when it comes to our finances, our property? What claim does the state have in these matters? 
The general truth view can give us a broad category, but do we need more nuance? And I think the answer to that, brothers and sisters, is yes. Secondly, the general truth view doesn't seem to adequately answer the absolute statements of Scripture. Peter gives us, again, no exceptions here in verse 13 and 14. Paul makes absolute statements too, some of which I've already read. Listen to this in verse 3 of Romans 13. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Then how would you describe Roman Emperor Nero? Or Caligula? Or Mao? Or Lenin? Or Stalin? Or Hitler? These are rulers who certainly were a terror to good conduct. My son Amos last night in our family worship, and we were talking about these categories, and he said, but I don't understand, because if we do good, our government doesn't like it right now. And I was like, great point, buddy. They don't. And this brings us to the question that we need to ask. We've, under, we've answered the question, who are we to submit but before we get to how we submit to them, let's answer the question, what is their job? Does the Bible describe the job of the state? And I think that the regulative principle view really helps us focus in on this idea. We know whom we're to submit to. We've talked about to what extent we should submit. So let's look at this foundational question of what is the God-ordained job of the state. God has ordained the state and granted it specific and limited powers to which we must submit. Hear that, church. We must submit to God-ordained state power. When they're in their lane, we must submit. What is the job of the authority that God has appointed. You see it in verse 14 in our passage this morning. Governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is a simple job description. The state has limited power. No human authority carries unrestricted power. And so here's the state's job. They must punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, we know this is the same in every category. As we're going to go through 1 Peter, and we're going to talk about these human institutions to which we should be in subjection. We're going to talk about employers. We're going to talk about fathers in a family. We're going to talk about elders of a church. We're going to talk about Christ over the world. In every one of these categories, there is, with the exception of Christ, a limitation on their authority. I have a brother-in-law who lives up in Indiana. His name's Matt, and he is the manager over a Sherwin-Williams warehouse. He runs the entire warehouse. Everybody is under his authority in this warehouse. Does he have authority to hire and fire and direct work in his warehouse? Of course, we all agree. That's his lane. That's his job. That's what he must do. Does he have a right to direct his employees' personal lives and family and health? And worship. Now, our immediate response is no, but what if their choices with family and health and worship are affecting their work? Now, you see, there's going to be some nuance here. We're going to discuss more about this next week when we get to verses 15 through 17 and we look at our behavior, our good conduct to the state 
that leads people to say, wow, there's something different about them. We're going to talk about more of those nuances. But I would say in the same way, the state has no biblical right to legislate or mandate things that God has not given to it. Um, Dr. Kaiser from this book, he talks about this concept of exousia, this overpower that they have. He says that that can be defined as the state has no powers except the powers given by God and is only divinely authorized to command and enforce what God specifically allows them to command and enforce. This begs the question. They're to praise do-gooders and to punish evildoers. So who defines what good is? Who defines what evil is? Where do we get those terms? Do we let the state decide? Because they've decided that it's good for a woman to have such authority over her body that she murders the child in her womb. That's their decision. And they say that this is good. This is progress. We're advancing in the world. We have to ask the question, by what standard do we judge good and evil? Has the state, for example, been given the job of discerning good from evil? Now, that's an honest question. Where does the scripture give the state the discernment power of good and evil? It says here explicitly that they're to praise the good and punish the evil, but nowhere throughout the entire Bible does it give the state the right to discern what is good and what is evil, to make that decision. The word of God is the standard by which we should judge these things. This is the lex is rex. The law is the king. And as a matter of fact, America is supposed to be a republic. The law is the highest authority of our land. Lex is rex even in our own constitution. It is the job of the church to disciple the nations and teach them obedience to Christ and his law. I'll say that again. It is the job of the church to disciple the nations and to teach them obedience to Christ and his law. Can and should we approach our representatives? Yes, we should. We should show them deference, honor, and respect, and we should instruct them of what God commands them to do. Because society will flourish and God will be honored when the state is in its lane praising those who do good and punishing those who do evil. So I say at the close today, beloved, remember these things. The state is God's idea. We live in a context where everything seems to be flying off the rails. But God created the state. He created it for our good and the protection of the church and others from evil. He gave it that specific task. And they must do this as defined by the word of God. So what should we do then? when the state is out of its lane? A few application points. What should we do when the state punishes good and praises evil? As I said, we'll talk about this more next week, but some things to consider. This is a tough pill to swallow, church. We should hold up our end of the covenant, even if they do not. We are in covenant with the state. We're to be obedient to God, to be in subjection and... We are all under the same constitution, which, as I mentioned last week, is another form of a covenant. We're required to do certain things. They're required to do certain things. 
we must hold up our end of the covenant, even if our rulers do not. And if they do not, brothers and sisters, we don't have a right to crab about it. We don't have a right to get antsy in our pants about this. We don't have a right to get upset and throw a fit and lose our joy. Scripture allows no room for us to lose the eternal joy that Christ put in us through the Spirit because the state is not doing what it should. We have not been given a biblical path to rebellion or aggression. However, there is a biblical case to be made for self-defense. And yes, that's even written into our own founding documents here in America. Therefore, we must strive to submit to all authority as God commanded. Kaiser again. Dr. Kaiser says, Make sure rulers understand or are reminded of what the covenant requires. It is our job to go to them and plead with them, as we've done in the past with the city council meetings, telling them what God requires of them. We are commanded to pray for those in authority and to ask God's blessing on them to see the truth and be obedient to it. In addition, we can ask God to judge rulers who refuse to kiss his son. Lastly, we should seek to be faithful citizens unto the Lord regardless of the circumstances. Beloved, I've heard it said before that if you come back from the dead, you're the ultimate authority. If you come back from the dead, you're in charge. Remember this. This is Jesus's world. He holds all authority. No authority exists apart from the decree of our God. And as Jesus has looked down on each one of us in the various forms of authority that we have in life and seen us failing abysmally day in and day out and still forgives us and still welcomes us into his loving arms, let us approach the state with charity. Let us approach the state from a place of love. Let us approach the state desiring to see them repent for the gospel, even for President Biden or Nancy Pelosi or anybody else that seems to be doing whatever they want. The gospel is still the power of salvation for them if they will believe. The gospel is the power of salvation for you today if you will believe. Young people in this room, hear me. Jesus died the death that you deserve because of your sin. And Jesus forgives everyone who repents and comes to him. He does not cast one of them out. So come today to Jesus. Come today as a repenter. If you've never repented before, please today come to Christ. His arms are open wide for those of us in the room who are fathers who have failed miserably as Jeremy prayed in his pastoral prayer earlier, we can come to Christ knowing that we were given authority and that he loves us in spite of our failures as authorities in the home. If we run a business or we work for someone and we get upset and angry and talk disrespectfully about them, Jesus still welcomes us with open arms. Beloved, this love of Jesus is unwavering. Consider that for just a minute. 
It is unwavering. It is never for one moment. He has never had a second thought about whether or not he saved you. Not one time has he thought, you know, that probably wasn't a good idea. He went to the cross and he did the work. He despised the shame that it brought him. But he secured a bride and he crushed the head of the serpent. Now we should be serpent head crushing people of Jesus in this world. We should be truth proclaimers. We should not be ashamed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the opportunity today to come again to your word, to be instructed by it, to hear that you have given us authorities for our good and to keep evil far from us. And Lord, we admit and confess to you that we have neglected our responsibility to remind them of theirs. It is our job to disciple the nations, and that includes governing authorities. That includes teaching them good and warning them of evil. That includes commanding from your word that they kiss your son Jesus. Oh Lord, would you renew in us a courage to do just that, to be bold before our authorities, to proclaim the goodness of Christ to them, and to pray for their repentance and not be ashamed of praying judgment if it is necessary according to your will. Oh Lord, as we come to the table now, help us to remember that we too need repentance and forgiveness. And that is why we come seeking again to remember the body and the blood of Christ because we need it. We need it. Our government needs it, but we need it, Lord. We need your forgiveness. And we thankfully come to this table to receive it again. Remembering what you did for us. Amen.